Yeah, good morning, guys. Glad you're here. Welcome to Connect. I was at uh, Chapters Bookstore the other day. A couple weeks back, I walked in, and they had a huge display right up front. They were highlighting a magazine. This particular issue of the magazine was listing the top 100 most important or influential people that lived in all time throughout history. This was not just the most influential or important people of 2015, okay? Thankfully, the Kardashians were nowhere on this list. This was the top 100 most important, most influential figures throughout history. So I got curious. I walked up and I started flipping through the magazine. I had no intention of buying it whatsoever, but I was certainly going to browse. And so I was flipping through the pages and I noticed that there were a lot of names on that list that you would expect to see. Lots of names that were not surprising at all. Names like Albert Einstein. You would expect to see him on a top list, the 100 most influential people of all time. There were names like Stephen Hawking, a very famous scientist, Leonardo da Vinci, Napoleon, Even somebody like Adolf Hitler had his place on the list. There were guys who were musicians and artists like Mozart and Beethoven. There were world leaders like Gandhi. I mean, this was a who's who of people who have changed the world. And as I was flipping through that list, honestly, I wasn't really very surprised by any of the names. They all kind of made sense. Every single person on that list did something to impact the world that we live in today. There's a reason that they are remembered, whether they were an artist or a musician, whether they were a world leader or a scientist, whatever it was, they made contributions that changed the world as we know it. I wasn't surprised to see them there. But when I got to number one, honestly, I was pretty shocked at who they chose. It was a little surprising to see all of these very famous scientists, these genius musicians, these brave and courageous and bold world leaders, and then you get to number one on the list. And to be perfectly blunt with you, the person that they chose is a little bizarre. It was a little strange that this person was named the number one most important or most influential figure that ever lived. It's like it's so crazy, it's hard to even explain how he could be the number one choice of all time. You probably have an idea already of who it is. In 1926, there was a poet named James Allen Francis, and he wrote a poem about this man, the same one that the magazine chose as the most important, most influential of all time. He wrote a poem in which he lays out all of the reasons that this guy should not be number one. He shouldn't be mentioned in the same breath as people like Isaac Newton or Winston Churchill. I mean, he just kind of lays it out there and he says this. I'm going to read this poem for you about this man who was chosen number one. He was born in an obscure village, the child of a peasant woman. He grew up in another obscure village where he worked in a carpenter shop until he was 30 when public opinion turned against him. He never wrote a book. He never held an office. He never went to college. He never visited a big city. He never traveled more than 200 miles from the place that he was born. He did none of the things that we usually associate with greatness. He had no credentials but himself. He was only 33. His friends ran away. One of them denied him. He was turned over to his enemies, and he went through the mockery of a trial. 
He was nailed to a cross between two thieves, and while he died, his executioners gambled for his clothing, the only property that he had here on earth. When he was dead, he was laid in a borrowed grave through the pity of a friend. And then this poet says this, 20 centuries have come and gone, and yet today this man is still the central figure of the human race. He is the leader of all of mankind's progress. All the armies that have ever marched, all the navies that have ever sailed, all the kings who have ever reigned, all the parliaments who have ever sat, when put together, have not affected the life of man here on earth as powerfully as that one solitary life. I'm sure you guys can figure out the person that he's talking about here in the poem, the person that was chosen as the central figure of all of human history, the most important person that ever lived is Jesus of Nazareth. And although I'm one of his followers, and even though I'm a pastor of one of his churches, I'll be the first to admit to you that it is totally bonkers that this man would be counted as the most important figure that ever lived in history. I want you to imagine for a sec that aliens came down here to earth. I know that's a little non sequitur, but stick with me, okay? Imagine that aliens came down here to earth. And they visited us and they said, hey, tell us all about your history. What's been going on before we got here? In fact, why don't you tell us who the most important person that ever lived is? Tell us why that person was so influential, why he was so important. Just fill us in on all the details. And then I want you to imagine their surprise when we tell them, well, listen, the most important individual that ever lived, the most influential person that ever spoke on our earth was a carpenter who lived in a dusty corner of the globe 2,000 years ago. Not only that, but he was actually executed for treason against his own government just three years after he came on the public scene. Can you imagine how blown away the aliens would be? They'd say, whoa, what? That's him? That's number one? He's the most important guy? And he is. Not just in that magazine, not just in this poet's opinion, but when you look through the names The lists, the countdowns, the rosters of the most important people that have ever lived in history, one name always comes out on top, the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. It doesn't make any sense. How could this guy, this homeless, part-time rabbi, how could he possibly have such a huge impact on our world? How could he change the course of history? And how could he continue to change lives today? We're going to be answering that question over the next three weeks as we dig into this series called The Genius of Jesus. We're going to look at the things that he said and the things that he did that allowed him to impact the world and to change it. Those things that he said and did that have caused people for thousands of years to leave behind their lives so that they can follow after him and put his words into practice. We're going to talk about the genius of Jesus. And I'm going to go ahead and give you the bottom line for the entire series right here. I want you to know this from the get-go because this is going to be key. This is how you are going to understand the way in which Jesus changed the world. Are you ready for it? Jesus transformed history by transforming people. That was his method. 
He didn't show up on the scene and start a new government. He didn't start a rebellion. He didn't invent anything. He didn't discover anything, although he could have done any one of those things. He didn't change history in any of the ways that we would expect. He changed history by changing people. And Jesus continues to change lives today. His kingdom, his teachings, his life continues to march forward as he changes people in Calgary, in Canada, and around the world in the 21st century. So we're going to start with what is the most famous speech ever given. We're talking about the most famous man, the most influential person that ever lived. Let's talk about the most famous speech that he ever gave. It's called the Sermon on the Mount. We call it the Sermon on the Mount because it was a sermon that happened on a mountain. We Christians are incredibly creative like that, okay? The Sermon on the Mount. Even if you're not a religious person, this could be the very first time that you've ever stepped foot inside of a church. And I guarantee you, as you read through these words, you're gonna see stuff that you've heard your entire life. You didn't even realize that it was Jesus that said these things. And yet his words have continued to resonate. They've continued to impact and change our world. And you'll see why here in just a sec. So we're gonna start reading here in Matthew chapter number five. The Sermon on the Mount happens in uh, chapters five, six, and seven, but don't sweat it, okay? We're not gonna read chapters five, six, and seven today. We're not gonna go through three chapters of the Bible. We're gonna read a few verses here and there throughout the Sermon on the Mount to highlight the ways in which Jesus could be so simple and so profound, the ways in which he could challenge what we accept to be common knowledge and common wisdom, and the ways in which he has proven himself true over and over again in what he says. Matthew chapter number five, verse one and two, the scripture says, one day as he saw the crowds gathering, Jesus went up on the mountainside and he sat down. His disciples gathered around him and he began to teach them. So Jesus goes up, he sits down on a mountainside, people gather around, they pull up some grass and he starts to have a conversation. And the conversation that he has goes on to be the most famous and influential message that's ever been given. You'd expect this kind of message to be something that's given, you know, in a stadium with lots of bright lights and there are people filming it so that we can tweet it later on. But no, Jesus doesn't do that. Instead, he sits down with his followers. He has a small chat on the side of a mountain and it transforms the course of human history. In the next three chapters, Jesus starts to talk about a huge variety of subjects. He covers like anything you could possibly imagine, greed and love, giving to the needy, poverty, adultery. He covers hypocrisy and the afterlife. He talks about caring for other people. He talks about prayer. He talks about all of these different things. And he covers a lot of ground, honestly, for what was probably a 20 or 30 minute talk. You know what I mean? That's a lot of subjects. If I stood up here in the introduction and I said to you, hey, we're going to talk about all of these different things, you'd be like, oh my gosh, are we going to get out of here by dinner? And yet Jesus covered every single one of them in about 20 or 30 minutes. I was laughing in my office as I was reading through this because I thought to myself, if Jesus had been in my seminary classes, if he had sat through the classes where they teach you how to prepare and deliver sermons, the professors would have been like, hey, Jesus, 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 I got to give you an F on this one, man. This is too much material. You need to narrow the focus, pick one or two topics, give them a clear bottom line. That's what they would have expected. And yet Jesus, despite the fact that this was a small chat on the side of a mountain, 
Despite the fact that there was a small crowd of people around, despite the fact that he covered so much information that it should be mind-boggling, these words have the power to change your life. His words have stood the test of time. As I said, even if you're not religious, you've heard these words and perhaps you even live by some of these words. Maybe you just don't realize it. Part of the reason that these words have stood the test of time. Part of the reason that we're still talking about this speech 2,000 years after it's given is that Jesus had this incredible knack for showing the simplicity of what God wants from us. That's one of the things he did better than anybody else. He took what we think of as very complicated subjects. He distilled them down into very simple truths so that we could put them into practice and live them out every single day. He was the master of simplifying what God wants from each one of us. Let me give you a few examples, if you don't mind. We're going to pull out a few verses here from the Sermon on the Mount. Let me show you what I mean. In Matthew chapter number 6, verses 5 through 6, Jesus talks about prayer. And he he says these words, these very, very simple words. When you pray, don't be like the hypocrites who love to pray publicly on street corners and in the synagogues where everyone can see them. I tell you the truth, that is all the reward they will ever get. But when you pray, go away by yourself, shut the door behind you and pray to your father in private. Then your father who sees everything will reward you openly. Jesus simplifies what we should do when it comes to prayer. He says, if you'll make prayer a private priority, then God will provide for you publicly. It's simple. You don't have to memorize these long-winded prayers and get every word just right in order for God to hear you. You don't have to walk around swinging incense as you pray to God so that maybe he'll hear you. You don't have to offer your puppy as a sacrifice so that God will answer your prayer. Jesus says, humbly pray to your father in secret and he will reward you openly. So simple. Nobody else said anything that simple or that profound. Let me give you another example. In Matthew chapter number five, flip back a page. Verses 33 through 37, Jesus talks about the importance of keeping your word. You've also heard that our ancestors were told you must not break your vows. You must carry the vows that you make to the Lord. But I say, don't make any vows at all. Do not say by heaven, because heaven is God's throne. And do not say by earth, because the earth is his footstool. And do not say by Jerusalem, for Jerusalem is the city of the great king. Apparently back in Jesus' day, like they would say, I swear by Jerusalem. Try that next time in your life. You know, you're trying to promise somebody you're gonna do something, they're gonna look at you like you're a total weirdo. But people used to do it in his day. And Jesus says, shouldn't be that way. Do not even say, I swear by my head, for you cannot turn one hair white or black. Then he says this in verse 17, just a simple, yes, I will, or no, I won't. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. He makes it so simple. He says, hey, listen, you should be known for keeping your word. You should be, you should have so much integrity. People should know they can trust you to the point that you can say simply yes or no, and you don't have to convince them that you're going to follow through. Simple. Now, look, I'm going to be a little honest here for just a sec, okay? I'm going to let you, give you a window into Daniel. I struggle with this one just a little bit. I honestly do. When uh, people, and by people, I mean Amber, when she asks me to do something, I have this tendency 
to say, babe, I'm going to try to get that done this week, right? And she can't get mad at me because I'm saying I'm going to try to get it done. Now, I know that by using the word try, when I don't do it, then I can go back and say, hey, I told you I was going to try. I did my best. What do you expect? I think at one point in our marriage, I actually said to her, I can't promise I'll try, but I'll try to try. What is that? I don't even know what that means. She doesn't normally let me get away with that, and Jesus doesn't either. He says, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Let's keep it simple, folks. Let's let people know that they can count on you. I'll give you one more example. Matthew chapter number five again. Uh, You can start reading in verse number 38, the very next verse there in his speech. Jesus says, you have heard the law that says the punishment must match the injury. And so the law says an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say, do not resist an evil person. If someone slaps you on the right cheek, then offer them the other cheek also. If you are in court and your shirt is taken from you, then give your coat too. If a soldier demands that you carry his gear for a mile, then carry it for two miles. Give to those who ask and don't turn away from those who want to borrow. Jesus simplifies it. He says, turn the other cheek. Give them the shirt off your back. Go the extra mile. Again, even if you've never been in church, you've never heard the Sermon on the Mount before, you've heard those phrases because they are simple reminders of how God wants every one of us to live. The genius of Jesus is that he breaks it down. He makes doing God's will so simple that we can't argue. See, we live in a world that would rather debate than do. We want to talk about, well, what exactly does this mean? And what about that situation? And how do, we, how do we handle this? And Jesus says, no, 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 no. Let's keep it simple. Do this and your life will be blessed. Your marriage will be better off. Your workplace will be a, a more effective and profitable place to do business if you'll put these into practice. We have a tendency to complicate what God makes very, very simple. For example, throughout history, people have wrestled with what it means to relate to one another. You know, what does it mean? How should we interact with each other? And so throughout the centuries over time, we've developed all of these rules about how we should relate and interact. What does it mean to love one another, to live as neighbors, all of those different things. In fact, if you look through the Old Testament, which is the first two thirds of the Bible, okay? When you look through the Old Testament, what you find out is there are hundreds of rules that their society, the ancient Israel society, Israeli society, had developed so that they would know how to relate to one another on a daily basis. Literally, there were hundreds of rules about what you were allowed to do or not allowed to do. If somebody did this to you, you could do that in response to them. There were rules that dictated how you would treat a family member, how you would treat a friend, how you would treat a stranger, how you would treat one of your enemies. There were rules after rules after rules. If you read the Old Testament, there's a rule that says as a parent, you are not allowed to offer your child as a sacrifice to a pagan God. And all of your kids who are back in the children's department, we're telling them that this morning, okay? Just so they know that's in there. There were also rules 
that said whether or not you were allowed to help your neighbor pull his ox and cart out of the ditch on the Sabbath. Like every possible interaction that you could imagine happening between two people, there were rules that governed what you were allowed to do and what you were not allowed to do. And so it was this big complicated system that honestly raised as many questions as it ended up answering. Even with all of those rules, hundreds of them, people were still asking, well, who is my neighbor? And how do I really love them? What happens if this, or in that scenario, or in that case, people were still asking questions. Then Jesus comes along here in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter number seven, verse 12. And he says, do to others whatever you would like them to do to you. This is the essence of all that is taught in the law and prophets. Jesus simplified hundreds of rules and he distilled thousands of years of teaching down into 12 words. 12 words sum up how you should relate to everybody you know, to your wife, to the jerk at your office, to your neighbor that you rarely ever see, 12 words dictate how you should handle that situation, right? You say, well, look, what if uh, my sister is just difficult and I don't really like her and I don't know, it's just been tough all of these years. Jesus says, treat her the way that you wanna be treated. That's it. Yeah, but what if, what if? And Jesus says, no, 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 no. No matter who, no matter what, treat them the way that you wish they would treat you. He simplified it. He made it so straightforward that anybody could do it. Again, this is the genius of Jesus. He simplifies things to the point that we can't sit around and debate, what does this mean? He makes it very clear. Love your neighbor as yourself. Treat the person next to you the way you wish that you were treated. Hey, can you imagine how different our world would be if we put those simple words into practice, if we took just these simple teachings, these profound, straightforward things that Jesus said, if we really started to do them, I believe they would have the power to change things. Your family could change if you started to put some of these things into practice. You would approach your job differently every day if you were putting these things into practice. Your relationship with God could be more vibrant and alive than you ever imagined if you got serious about the words in these three chapters and started living them out every single day. Hey, even if you're not religious, if you're here this morning and you're like, hey, I don't know what I believe about God and Jesus and all that stuff, I'm going to give you permission today to take this stuff and just treat it as self-help. That's okay. You can do that. If you just take the parts that say, be honest and serve your neighbor, love your neighbors yourself, if you start to put that into practice, you don't even have to be a Jesus person in order to see the benefits of that in your life. My hope though, is that when you start to put those into practice as self-help, self-improvement, that you'll say to yourself, wow, Jesus was right about this. I wonder if he was right about all the other stuff he said too. My first challenge to you this morning is to get into Jesus' words. Dig in. Like I know reading the Bible, it can be scary and big and where do I start? Go to Matthew 5 and read those three chapters. Even if you're not a strong reader, you can read all three chapters in about 20 minutes. And if you do, 
let those words also read you. Think about, man, where do I need some work? Where could I benefit in my life from putting these words into practice? And I promise you, if you do, then things around you, your circumstances, your situations, your relationships, they really can start to change. Jesus is the most revered and respected person in history, partly because he so simply taught and he embodied what we should do in our life. There's still one problem, though. If I'm honest, even though Jesus made it so simple and so profound, and there are some of these things that I'm like, oh, I do that good. Oh, I do that one great. I don't have any trouble there. There are lots of these things that I fail to live out every single day. In fact, it seems like more often than not, I'm failing to hit the mark. I'm doing my best. I'm trying. I want to do the right thing, but man, I just can't seem to make it happen. I don't know if you feel that way. In your life, you know the right thing to do in a given situation. You want to do the right thing, and yet you still find yourself doing the wrong thing every time. You know, it's like as the words are coming out of your mouth, you're saying to yourself, this isn't going to help. In fact, this is going to make the situation a whole lot worse. As you take that step, you go to that person's house, or you go to have that uh, confrontation or whatever it is, you're thinking, I shouldn't be doing this. I know this is a bad idea, and yet here I go. We can work really hard to try to put Jesus' words into practice, but there's something deeper that's going on in each one of our hearts. You see, in the same way that doing selfish things can separate you from the people that are in your life, doing things that are contrary to God's plan for your life, they can actually serve to separate you from God. If you act selfishly in your marriage, you're going to feel far from your spouse. That's just how it works. If you seek after your own ways in your relationship with God, then you're going to feel far from him. That's just how relationships work. Now, here's the thing. I know how to apologize to my wife when I've been stupid, okay? I've got a lot of experience doing that. But how do I reconcile with God? That's a little foggier, It's a little harder to figure out what I'm supposed to do when I know I haven't been quite living out Jesus' words the way I should, when I've chosen my own way and I've made a mess of things and I feel distant from God. What am I supposed to do in those situations? How can I be reconciled to God? People throughout history have wrestled with that very question. What does it mean? How do we do that? And so, especially in Old Testament times, but this has been true of cultures throughout time in history all across the globe, they have come up with these big, huge, complex systems that help you atone for, that is to make up for the wrong that you've done, to restore you back to God. If you go to the Old Testament, What you find out is that there were all of these rules. In the same way that there were these rules that governed how we were supposed to interact with each other, there were all these laws about what you did when you broke one of the commands, when you failed to live up to God's teaching. And so if you were alive in the Old Testament days and you committed a sin, you had to start by going to sacrifice an animal. How many of you guys are glad we don't have to deal with that today? I mean, seriously, that would be terrible. If you broke one of the laws, you were required to sacrifice an animal. And it was like sin specific. 
So if you sinned this way, you had to sacrifice that animal. And if you sinned that way, then you had to sacrifice this other kind of animal. And on top of that, there were all these rules about how it had to be done. So it had to be done in the proper place, by the proper person, in the proper order, with the proper instruments. I mean, it was this gigantic, complex, ugly system that you had to enter into every single time you sinned. And then Jesus comes along and he does what he always does. He simplifies things. If you look in John chapter number three, Jesus says, for this is how God loved the world. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but will have eternal life. And then he says, God sent his son into the world, not to judge the world, but to save the world through him. In the middle of this huge system where every time you felt distant from God, you had to go sacrifice an animal, Jesus comes along and he simplifies things. He says, you can be reconciled to God not because you sacrifice the right animal, not because you never break the commandments in the first place. He says, if you'll simply believe, if you'll trust in me, then I will be the one who reconciles you to God. No more of all of these rules and laws and systems. He says, simply come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give your soul rest. He says, God love the world. That's a change. See, when you're sacrificing animals all the time, your assumption is God is angry. Jesus comes along and he says, nope, nope, nope. God operates from love. His MO, his rationale, his reasoning behind everything he does is love for the world. In fact, he proves that when he offers his son so that no longer do you have to hold yourself to a standard that you're never going to keep anyway. But instead, you can trust that Jesus lived the life that you should have so that you can have the relationship with God that you've always wanted. Jesus not only simplified truth, but he simplified the path to God. That's the reason that he changed the world. It's not because he taught like a good teacher. It's not because he said some interesting or quotable things. He changed the world because he simplified what it means for us to have a relationship with Jesus. That is beautiful. That's why we sing in our worship time, hallelujah, what a savior. Hallelujah, what a cross. Because in offering himself, Jesus simplified. He focused what it means for us to have a relationship with God. And in the process, he changed the entire world. Jesus demonstrates how changed people living out simple truth really can transform the world around them. My hope is that you'll figure out where you fall on that spectrum. Maybe this morning you need to be changed. You know that your life has left you far from God. There's something within you that yearns to be close to your creator, but you're not sure what to do. I'm gonna give you the opportunity to begin a new relationship with Jesus here in just a moment. And as we read his words from John chapter number three, it begins simply by believing or trusting that Jesus and God genuinely do love you.
Maybe you've been changed, but you haven't been living out that simple truth. These things that he said here in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, the things that he said in the Gospel of Luke and Mark and John, maybe you haven't been living them out on a daily basis. Can I challenge you to start to put those words into practice? Because your life will be better for it. When you allow yourself to be changed by the message of Jesus, when you put that message into action in your marriage, with your kids, with your family, at your job, at the grocery store, wherever it is, when you put that into practice, you really can see your world transformed.